With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ninth Story Podcast. This is Season 6, Episode 7. We are a podcast about writing. We answer the burning questions you want to know. I'm Immortal Alexander. And I'm Jeanette Andromeda. Today, our guest is the author of Ella Enchanted, among many other titles. She also wrote the book, Writing Magic, Creating Stories That Fly. Welcome, Gail Carson Levine, to the Ninth Story Podcast. It's great to be with you. (laughs) So what we're talking about today is creating magic with words. And Gail, one of your books just so happens to be called Writing Magic, which works out pretty well. Jeanette has always been a huge fan of yours growing up, reading oh, a lot of your absolutely. books. absolutely. And oh, uh, thank you. Ella Enchanted was uh, one of the books that I read growing up. I'm just like, I want to write stories like this. <laughs> so thank you for writing that Thanks, story. <laughs> My sister and I geeked out about that and the two princes of uh, Baramir. I'm going to mispronounce the name because in my head it was always something else. But I we, we really have enjoyed your book. So I'm just going to try not to fangirl too hard. <laughs> oh, uh, let yourself go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for, for permission, because that's yeah, she's going to tell it's going to happen. It's going to happen, <laughs> which is totally fine. But you know, um, Jeanette and I have been doing this podcast for a while, and we're both uh, kind of fledgling writers. And really cool that I got to have one of my uh, one of my stories featured on the Wicked Library podcast, the Christmas special, and then I had a poem on their Halloween special. And we've been reading your book, uh, Writing Magic, which you had never read before. And it's been really inspirational. We've just been reading that book leading up to this interview because we really wanted to get more inside of the creative process than how you've been doing that and teaching that. And it's been really, really fascinating and, and inspiring for us. Great. So I can't and wait to talk to you more about it. <laughs> sure. And congratulations on the publications. Thank you. <laughs> um, so the concept of magic can be about creating childlike wonder or surprise for the audience. Uh, How do you approach magic in a story to create surprise or wonder? I do think about that sometimes. And um, sometimes it's by contrast. So in my um, two mystery books, um, A Tale of Two Castles and Stolen Magic, the detective is a dragon, Minor. Mm -hmm. And it um, is very ugly, um, except for its beautiful, translucent, uh, stained glass windowsy wings. So it's kind of the contrast between the two Mm -hmm. that I think provide the wonder. And there are, you know, I'm kind of drawn to this because I loved the wonder in fairy tales growing up. So things like um, tables that set themselves with fabulous food and seven-league boots. Mm-hmm. 
I love to go into those things because in a fairy tale, which is told very quickly, they just show up and <laughs> are not explored. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think there's surprise and wonder in exploring them. Sure. In what it feels like to travel in seven league boots and what it feels like to have uh, to be invisible or in two princesses of the more semi-invisible. Mm -hmm. That's where, that's what I'm thinking about. It's kind of like the opposite in horror where uh, with the less you know about the creature or whatever it is that's hunting other folks in the story, the less you know, the more terrifying these unknown things become. Whereas in magic, the more descriptive you get, the more uh, the reader gets pulled into the story and, and attached to those concepts. Well, that's an interesting distinction. And I ha guess I have a question. Sure. Mm -hmm. So in horror, when the reader doesn't know much, mm -hmm. do you know much? Do you know exactly what's going on? Yeah, I think the reader ends up knowing a lot more than the characters in the scene. Ah, uh, okay. But I'm talking about as far as like the descript the like the less you know about the main creature, the more uh, unknown things are. Like you don't know what's around the corner, you don't know what you know what might pop up. The unknown elements end up creating um, tension. Sure. And I sure. think as the writer of that kind of a creature, yeah, I have a good idea of what's in the shadows. Personally, I like mm -hmm. I, I oh, sure. pretty well flesh those guys out in my head, but I'll only talk about the tentacle tongues leaking out through whatever, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> right. right. you only need a snippet, even though yeah. maybe the rest of it looks like a fluffy rabbit to me. But <laughs> maybe that makes it more terrifying. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, it's it's wonderful to have a fluffy rabbit with, <laughs> you know, that delivers a uh, poisonous something. Yeah. <laughs> <Pretty> terrifying. <laughs> oh, what a cute. Ah! <laughs> right, right. I, I mean, it's, it's like imagining if your dog suddenly didn't love you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's nothing more horrifying than that. Absolutely. Because you get so used to that relationship between like a dog and, and yourself. I think that's why Cujo is genuinely terrifying to me. Um, so... When you're imbuing a magical trait into a character, do you decide on the ability or the personality of the character first? I don't really do either one. Mm -hmm. I'm usually um, directed in my choices. I start kind of start with an idea. And it's that idea that helps me figure out who my main character is going to be. And it, you know, it's kind of organic, so it's even hard to know. But I did, for example, one of my princess tales um, is based on the princess and the pea. Mm -hmm. And I don't think anybody in the world could feel a pea under 20 mattresses. <laughs> but all that she's needed to do is have a rotten night's sleep. So, and that's the end point that I knew I was heading toward. So when I thought about who she could be, she had to be somebody who would have that rotten night's sleep. I could have made her an insomniac, but I didn't do that. There are choices, but they're limited. So I decided that she would be 
sensitive to everything and aller highly allergic. So if there was a single pigeon feather in the swan's down pillows, that would be enough to make her not sleep. And then I knew that she needed also to be likable. Mm -hmm. So even though she's in many, many ways incapacitated, she's also super sweet. And when um, push comes to shove at the end of the story, she comes through. And it's the sweetness that kind of reveals the hollowness at the core of that fairy tale, which is, um, that's a, an insane test for a true princess, yeah. feeling a pee. And how can she be other than that? How can she be somebody that you would want to become a queen someday? So it was needing to put together those elements that got me to the character. In Ella Enchanted, who would resist a curse of obedience? What would that person be like? Mm -hmm. So it comes for me because the idea behind the story is the thing that guides me. So character rises out of that. I like it. And I, kn I personally know that you work a lot in, um, in that fairy tale kind of world. Um, but in case someone who's listening is not as familiar with your work, um, do you build a lot of your stories off of fairy tales? <laughs> I do, and part of it is because I'm not great at plotting. <laughs> and so if I have a fairy tale, it gives me kind of a very rough structure to work from. Not all my, my book, David Knight, is a historical novel. Mm -hmm. Two Princesses of Bamar was an attempt initially at the 12 Dancing Princesses oh. that I couldn't do. And that became a, um, an original fairy tale. And... A Tale of Two Castles has the loosest of connection to Puss in Boots, but it's barely there. Mm -hmm. So um, the framework sometimes vanishes, but I'm helped if I have something that I can lean on. Gail, what is your uh, process for painting a scene? Well, it's kind of remembering that people have to see what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I also am aware that they need to, you know, I, I try to remember, I don't try to, I do remember to bring in sensory data. And if I can find a smell that accompanies it, that's even better. Um, you know, but also I do rely on people's ideas of castles and moats and, you know, I don't make the sky a livid green because... If you change every element of the world, it's exhausting for the reader. So I rely on shared ideas of a castle, a moat, a joust, a knight. So what the reader sees, I hope, is um, pretty cinematic. But it's a lot of it is supplied by his or her imagination. So do you find yourself writing for a specific time period in order to make the story feel more magical? This kind of ties into what you just said. Um, Yes. Let me go back to Ella, which okay. uh, was like kind of fairy tale, and I was not particularly thinking of a time period. And then I started getting letters from kids thanking me 
for teaching them so much about the Middle Ages. <laughs> and I was horrified. Oh, no. <laughs> so I started learning about the Middle Ages. So that's become more and more present in books that have followed. So when I wrote A Tale of Two Castles, mm-hmm. I used um, Macaulay's book Castle, which is a fabulous nonfiction reconstruction of a castle. Very easy to follow. And my castle is his castle. And I do have fashion books through the centuries that I consult in um, Ogre Enchanted and in other books as well. Ogre Enchanted will be out next year and it's a prequel to Ella Enchanted. And um, she's a healer. And when she becomes an ogre, she's still a healer. And I looked at a lot about medieval medicine, some of which made sense. You know, they did cataract surgery astonishingly early. Um, But in some ways, it was also horrifying. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so I used that. In Ogre Enchanted, because Ella, I decided, had a sort of 18th century sensibility, Mm -hmm. I went more to the 18th century. Um, in my book Ever, which is a Mesopotamian fantasy, I read a lot about um, ancient Mesopotamia. But one of the nice things about writing fantasy is, you know, you can abandon it at will as well. Mm -hmm. So there's sort of an underpinning, but you can veer away from it and not worry too much about getting it wrong, which is nice. (laughs) What are some uh, magic-based tropes that you steer away from and why? Well, there's only one that I think that annoys me. And that's where I can't visualize it. Mm -hmm. All my fantasy is very solid reality-based. So if you can't touch it, see it, hear it, then I'm annoyed. (laughs) I'm annoyed at invisible force fields meeting mush Uh because I don't know what that is and I don't know what's happening to a character in the midst of that that's my objection that makes sense I think that's why your stories stay so grounded um thank you (laughs) what made you interested in magic in the first place I was addicted to fairy tales as a kid (laughs) and I had I had the blue fairy tale book the olive the lilac the brown. Um, we also had the um, a kids encyclopedia that doesn't exist anymore, that had fairy tales in every volume with beautiful uh, glossy paper illustrations, and I would go to those and read them and read them, and uncritically, it didn't trouble me that. The ending of Snow White, where the evil queen dances in the red hot slippers. I was completely down with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, many fairy tales. um, Hansel and Gretel is completely horrifying. Yes. And I was not horrified. I just read them happily and reread them and reread them. And so I I also loved mythology. So I read and reread um, Edith Hamilton's 
mythology, timeless tales of gods and heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of that, as soon as I started writing, I went back to. And, you know, I'm a very practical person, but in my imagination, anything can happen. Gail, how do you keep um, the story moving along? I get very sleepy if it's not. <laughs> and I start to feel like I'm slogging through quicksand. And when that happens, I I have to stop and I have to figure out where where I went wrong. And sometimes I have to go back to um, an earlier point in my story. And often the problem is that I've been reluctant to get my main character into enough trouble mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I, I love her and I don't want the worst to happen to her, but sometimes I have to make the worst happen and then things get moving again. But I get lost in stories. And in most of my books, uh, by the end, by the time it's published, I've tossed hundreds of pages in almost every book. And it, I just think it's the cost of doing business. And that's the way it is when I'm pretty much of a pantser. I, I do, lately I've been outlining a little bit, but um, I struggle to find my way through a story and in the process, I accept that I have to throw out a lot. And then I do celebrate that I have enough of an imagination and enough stick to to know that even though I throw out all those pages, I can keep creating and come up with hundreds more. It's just kind of the off cast as you go. It's the, it's the uh, pencil erasers as uh, marks as you go. That's all. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's one of the wonderful things about, um, I don't know if I'd be a writer if there were no computers. Because mm-hmm. it's so easy to delete. And, you know, I have a system. Um, if I toss something, I don't send it into the void. I save it in a separate file. Mm-hmm. For each book, I have a file called Extras. Because I always think, well, I may need that. And sometimes I do. So I don't lose anything. That's awesome. And when mm-hmm. I've changed something significantly... I save it as a new version, so if it's not working, I can go back to the old version and it's intact. I think that that's one of the things that you talk about in your book, uh, Writing Magic, that I need to start doing because I will just delete things and then go, oh, wait, what did I write? You know, yeah, you know, no, a few no, weeks no, later. Do <laughs> no, yeah. copy, yeah, paste also- elsewhere. <laughs> I think I, do you know my book, Writer to Writer? That one's next on my reading list because I haven't okay, read that one I, yet. I go into that even more in mm-hmm. Writer to Writer, which is based on my blog. Your blog, I have read. <laughs> ah, oh, great. So there's some things that you talk about in your blog that I'm like, oh, that makes so much sense. Um, but one thing that you kind of touched on in uh, just now and in your book, Writing Magic, you mentioned making your characters suffer. And uh, I know that got your book banned in at least one place, but why do you think that is important? Well, because there's really no story without a character's... There's almost no story. There are Laurie Colwyn, who wrote for adults, who's died, but 
she managed to write books that were gripping and nobody ever suffered. But I haven't figured out how to do that. Um, and that's what keeps somebody turning pages, is to be put, you want to make the reader suffer so the reader will keep reading to be put out of her misery. <laughs> it so worked. That's, that's essential. <laughs> you know, and the crazy people who banned the book, I would challenge them to find, other than Laurie Colwyn, a novel in which nobody suffers. Yeah, you look at it's something. It's not like, an interesting book. Yeah, you look at something <laughs> even like Snow White. I mean, she technically she technically dies and then kind of, and yeah, then, yeah, and then comes back. So there's there's suffering. There's a witch falling off a cliff. There's all sorts of things happening in that. Yeah, and that's Disney. So I think that um, I mean, was it like was it like a, like a Christian well, school or was it was it like really really uh, strict as far as their rules or what was the reasoning behind the banning other than the concept of suffering for the character? No, it was a school district, <laughs> and it was in Illinois. If you're listening, I don't think that the people who banned it ever read the book. Probably yeah, not. Probably not. <laughs> they probably just heard that one thing like, we don't want suffering at all. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I can remember uh, reading your books way late into the night going, oh, my God, what's going to happen next? I have to find out. And then it's like three in the morning, and I'm like, I'll just read this at school tomorrow. <laughs> I was one of those kids. I apologize to your teachers. It's okay. You kept me more focused, I think. <laughs> it meant I had to get my homework done fast so I could get back to reading. Ah. <laughs> um, part of the magic in your worlds is the personality of your characters. How do you build these amazing, quirky characters that are so full of personality? Well, again, it has a lot to do with the idea behind the story. And in... My latest, The Lost Kingdom of Bamar, is kind of based on Rapunzel. And Rapunzel is abducted at the beginning of the story. And so I was thinking about my child is very young and doesn't remember her birth parents. But what is it like to be snatched out by people who are willing to take a child? Mm -hmm. And um, this is a very uh, Spartan militaristic society and what is it like to grow up in there and to never feel entirely loved and what does that do to the child and she kind of becomes what they want her to be which is self-denying and determined but also with flaws that go with that a little bit she's socially awkward um so it's kind of thinking about what's going to move her through the story. And at the same time, I'm building in elements that are immediately going to create some of her suffering. There is another element um, that I've written about a little bit. There's a little romance in most of my books, not all, but most. And a lot of that comes from my parents who were um, in love their whole marriage. And I saw that part of it was that they complemented each other. So my father never finished high school and was diffident and um, didn't take credit. But my father was very, very sweet. And my mother 
who also didn't take a lot of credit. But my mother um, finished college and went on to a graduate degree. And um, my father loved having a brilliant wife. Mm -hmm. And my mother loved having a sweet husband. And my mother was not always sweet. She was more acerbic. Mm -hmm. um, so it was that complementing each other. So when I'm framing a match, I'm often looking for that um, way that they can mesh. And so I'm giving one quality to one and a quality that will uh, meet up to another. And sometimes that can be very deep, but sometimes it can be very light. So in one of my princess tales, in the one that's based on Sleeping Beauty, I make her, because in the fairy tale itself, um, the crazy part of it that got me writing is that when the prince who goes through the hedge to find her, when he gets there, he kisses her. <laughs> but all he knows about her at that point is that she's pretty and she doesn't snore. <laughs> so I was looking for a reason, a way to explain how that happens. Mm -hmm. And even after a hundred years, she has this reputation because she is, um, I forget, I think 10 times smarter than anybody on the planet. Yeah. And I give him this insatiable curiosity. And he's after her because he figures she can satisfy his curiosity, which she can, <laughs> although her answers are generally insane. But <laughs> so they work. And they so that's also part of creating a character. So you kind of, again, you, you touch on a lot of these things as we go, but there's one thing that you're particularly good at with your writing and it's balancing the sense of drama with keeping a lighthearted tone. And how do you find that balance? Well, I'm fairly lighthearted, <laughs> you know, and I'm fairly lighthearted, but I'm aware of the deeper notes of life. So um, that's kind of baked in me. And, you know, that's part of what makes it possible Writing is hard, as you might have noticed. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the things I love the best is writing a funny scene. So being able to write a funny scene is part of what gets me through the writing. Or even a funny second lifts my spirits. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a lot of strategies to make it possible to keep writing. But one of them is being able to be funny. When you think of a new book or a new story, where do you start? Is it a, a title, a place, a character? It's generally, if I'm working from fairy tales, it's, as I said, with, um, with Sleeping Beauty. It's how do I explain this craziness? Mm -hmm. How do I explain this king and queen who think that their son has to marry somebody who can feel a pee. I've been thinking this wouldn't work for a ch child audience, but I've been thinking a lot about Aladdin. Mm -hmm. And I, maybe it could, maybe someday it will, but 
he's, if you remember the, the fairy tale, he gets this old lamp, which you rub and a genie appears. And he marries the sultan's daughter. And the old lamp is in the castle. And he goes off hunting or wherever he goes. He never tells his wife that this is more than an old lamp. If she knew that important piece of information, she wouldn't give it away, mm-hmm. which is what she does, which creates a great deal of the drama in the story. So why doesn't he tell her? Well, he falls in love with her without seeing her. She's being carried in a palanquin, and he knows she's the sultan's daughter. And that's all he knows. And maybe the tip of her veil is trailing out, or a dainty ankle. But that's all he knows. Mm -hmm. And they marry... He has no reason to trust her. And a lot of the trouble, you know, he may think she also has no reason to love me. Mm -hmm. I don't want her to have this genie to control because if she rubs it, she gets the genie. So it's that kind of conundrum, which is at the heart of so many fairy tales and at the heart of Anything that I write is like some question that I'm unpacking. You know, my historical novel called David Knight is very loosely based on my father's childhood. And my father was an orphan who was sent to an orphanage to live. And uh, he had a miserable childhood. He never talked about it. But my father was the most joyous person I've ever known. And after he died, I didn't start writing until he died, until after he died. And um, I missed him very much. And I wanted to explain his joy. And so I wrote the historical novel to answer that question for myself, to answer how this child who was given up for adoption by his stepmother who is not taken in by any of his relatives, although his older brother and older sister are, but a different older brother goes to the orphanage with him and a younger half-brother does. But these are children, and the tragedy of all the children in this orphanage is that they are unwanted. Mm -hmm. How does this person get out of it? This delightful, joyful man, So in all my books, there is a question. That's how I do it. I think it's beautiful. And to explore that question for yourself, it's got to be really healing too. Like I can imagine it would be to just kind of revisit these thoughts and be able to really work on them together in a way. Yeah, well, it certainly drew him closer to me after, Mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't talk to him anymore. So it sounds like your dad in both real life and in the book where he's uh, one of your characters, he sounds like a great hero because of his joy. Um, When you write heroes or heroines, what do you think makes them great? 
Well, because they persevere through everything that I pile on them. <laughs> you know, and that's, I admire that in people. Mm-hmm. I admire that in myself. You know, writers are, you know, I think it was Lauren Bacall who said that old age is not for sissies, <laughs> which I'm discovering is true, but old uh, writing is not for sissies either. So, um, People who write, I think, are heroes, and I put heroes in my book who keep going in spite of the odds. What makes a great villain for you in your books? Well, I guess my favorite villain, I think, I don't know, uh, one of my favorite villains anyway is um, Valis mm-hmm. in Two Princesses of Bamar, the dragon, mm-hmm. because... She's a villain. She kills. She winds up killing every human she takes to her lair. But she also falls in love with them until she falls out of love with them. And that's unfortunate for them. But she's lonely and the reader knows that. And she's entertaining and she's funny. And I think it's the, it's that human wounded side of a villain that is... Like in my Disney fairy books, the dragon Kaito, until the last book, but even there, is pure evil, and he's just kind of an object to work against. He's not as interesting as other villains. And in Fairest, Ivy, she's not the only villain in there. There's Scully in the mirror. And in both cases... In the case of Ivy, you see how insecure she is and how uh, shallow her values are. Um, And that comes straight out of the fairy tale Snow White, where um, beauty is is the only, well, Snow White herself, even though she's in the original fairy tale, totally passive, Mm -hmm. is passive and sort of good in a bland way. the queen is judging her worth solely on her beauty. And um, that's a terrible curse. Mm-hmm. And Ivy in Fairest is cursed that way. And she's vulnerable. And um, I think that the reader has sympathy for her, and I have sympathy for her. And even Skullney in the Mirror who is despicable, but his part of his despicableness is that he's confined in a mirror by Lucinda. And, you know, who knows if he would be, if he had complete free will, if he would continue to be so despicable. Mm -hmm. So it's that kind of pitiable side of villains that I think round them out and make them uh, tragic and interesting. Yeah, I think it is always the imperfections that make any character feel more human and more relatable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, Gail, for some people, uh, it's childhood memories. For some people, it's daydreaming. Where does the magic of story come from within you? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I love that answer. <laughs> I was a total reader as a kid, 
And I think that, you know, if you read and reread and reread and read, um, the kind, a kind of story shape gets, you absorb that. So maybe that's it. That's love, the best yeah. I can do because I don't, I don't know. Everything becomes a story, I think, for yeah. us, for writers. It's everything you see, everything you smell, everything you read. It sticks with you and just kind of keeps burrowing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I'm certainly not in, in, unique in that. Yeah. <laughs> I just like to ask it sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, fantasy and fairy tales in particular have really inspired you. Are there any other genres that you find yourself drawn to that inspire you? Well, the inspiration is indirect, but I mm -hmm. love poetry. And there are poems in most of my books. And last year, I graduated from NYU's MFA program in poetry. So, um, so I read poems, I write poems for adults and for kids in my books. Um, I don't know exactly what, well, poetry certainly uh, makes me very aware of language. Mm -hmm. And since studying poetry and writing it a lot, I'm even aware when two syllables are very alike in a sentence. And depending on what I think works better is I'll even change to a synonym to get away from that sound echo. Mm -hmm. Or I may use um, a synonym to get the echo. So poetry does that. But also poems are subtle. And I think that helps in trusting the reader because uh, somebody who writes poetry expects a lot from a reader. But I also expect a lot from readers. I think it's annoying if the writer, you know, doesn't trust the reader. So I think poetry helps with that too. And also poetry is very often about very fundamental things. Um, and also poetry in poems People are not always, poets are not always their best selves. Mm -hmm. And so it opens the door to writing about stuff that isn't admirable and finding a place for that. So poetry, yay poetry. <laughs> Who are some of your uh, biggest influences? Um, yeah, Jane Austen and her wit, um, I adore. I would like to say live inside me. I aspire to that kind of wit. But books that I've loved, I loved. And to go back to your question about lightness, mm -hmm. as a kid, I adored Anne of Green Gables, all the Anne stories. And they were, among other things, very funny. When I started, I wrote Ella because I had just read Beauty by Robin McKinley. And I do want, even though this isn't reading, but I was very lucky that when I was getting started, um, a teacher named Margaret or Bunny Gable was teaching, she no longer teaches there, but she was teaching at uh, the new school. And um, she taught a book, a course in writing for kids. It was a workshop format. Uh, which I took, I I let, left myself back uh, for several years. 
to retake it and retake it with this class full of um, amazing writers. And I still, so that when I talked about including sensory information, mm-hmm. that comes from that class where I would remember, oh yeah, don't forget smells, don't forget sounds, because sight is our most important, you know, humans operate more from sight than anything else. But I remember because of that class to bring that in. When I start a book, I'm aware that I'm often including information that um, just because I need to know it and the reader doesn't. So um, I may put it in anyway and know that I'm going to take it out. Mm -hmm. But that was something I heard in that class all the time. Not critically, just kind of, this is interesting, it probably is what you need to know, not what the reader does. And so I was really lucky to have that. And when Ella won the Newbery Honor, uh, Patricia Riley Giff won for Lily's Crossing, and she was also a bunny student. Wow. So since you obviously get a lot from that educational setting, I know you also were teaching for a while and you still teach both like through your blog at the very least. Does teaching the craft of writing inspire you as well? Yes. Um, the, I love the blog. I love doing it. For one thing, I love reading the questions that pop up on the blog. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love the discussion and If you've read it at all, you see what a supportive environment it is. Oh, yeah. I had to shut it down only once. Mm -hmm. It was only one time when somebody flamed. Oh, no. And I publicly said, this is not what we do here. And that person apologized and came back supportively. and, um, And people come up with the most wonderful ideas but it's also great for me because when I revisit a topic I remind myself of things that I need to remember mm-hmm. so it's it's great for that as well and also because um, several times my publisher at HarperCollins has not liked my titles and I've crowdsourced titles to the blog and gotten titles for several books from the blog, which has been heavenly. And I teach a, I do a free workshop for kids in the summer in Brewster, New York, where I live through the library for kids um, 10 through, through high school, through Mm -hmm. senior and high school. And for six weeks, every summer, if anybody's listening, call the library. Um, it's not an online course. It's there. So they have to get to Brewster mm-hmm. weekly for six weeks. But um, one high school senior came from Illinois one summer. Wow. And I love doing that, too, because um, I give the kids homework. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I don't grade them, but I give them um, I give them edits, and they are these are kids who are, love to write, and they do the homework even though they don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's 
fun for me to uh, see what they come up with and their eagerness. And um, I've discovered a few young writers who have um, knocked my socks off. So it's it's a wonderful thing. That's amazing. It really is. Yeah. It's like <laughs> it's so cool to have to to give that opportunity to young writers alone. I, it makes me feel good. I'm not even part of it. <laughs> it's just like, yes, keep doing it. It's so important because people don't... It, it's amazing to see a kid when they find the space that they feel safe enough to just try. You know, so often it's like, oh, you're trying. That's not cool. But when you're in a space like that where it's you don't even have to do your homework, but you have to do your homework because you need to, you want to, like to at a deep level, that's just really cool to hear that you're helping get people excited that way. That's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. (laughs) Normal everyday things can create wonder in our stories. And I love how your book, Writing Magic, asks the reader to use their senses, use how they take in the world to describe a scene. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, Like... I did when I was in the MFA program. Um, I, I think I'm answering your question. Tell me if I'm not. Okay. But um, I taught a creative writing class for undergrads. And one time I said, well, okay, um, you can take the tiniest thing. Like, for example, and we were sitting around a, a big table, and they said, well, suppose... Suddenly, the table um, grew feet, mm-hmm. and the table starts moving around. And supposing I went to the blackboard, and um, I started writing on it, but the words were symbols, and I expected you, I talked about the symbols as if they were English, and and then... Um, supposing the light fixture came down and started moving. So how does your character react? What does your character do? Um, does your character admit that anything is wrong? Or mm-hmm. You know, so we can take any moment in, you know, supposing I start, I'm looking at, talking to you, I'm looking at my laptop. Supposing I start typing on it and I press... Uh, T-H-E, but what appears on the screen is something entirely different. Mm -hmm. Uh, The smallest tinkering with reality can plunge us into horror, Mm -hmm. into fantasy, into into anywhere. And that, it's fun to think about that. Was that the question? Uh, I a, think that answers. It's a it's a great answer. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, but I definitely wanted to. I, I really just enjoyed um, a lot of the exercises in the book about. Yeah, your uh, writing prompts are pretty. Noti- fantastic. Yeah, pr- prompts to get kids to notice things and and to write for an entire day what you're noticing about uh, your breathing, the sounds uh, when you're walking yeah. up and down stairs, and all these little details, and then how if you write the little details in, then your reader can uh, experience it. Mm-hmm. I love writing the prompts. It shows. It really shows. I, I and it like in your prompts, it it shows the care. It shows 
um, just kind of pushing that inspiration. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I had to read this a little bit quicker than I would have liked. Um, I wish I had discovered this book a little bit sooner, but <laughs> I'm like bookmarking every page with a prompt. I'm like, I'm coming back into, I'm coming back to this because I want to play with that. And it's just the fun in it and the way you kind of shift how whoever's reading this book, you're going to look at the world totally differently. It's not just you're walking outside and you're going to your car, you're walking outside and it's a gorgeous day and there's leaves falling down around you or something. Like it smells weird though. Why does it smell weird? And then off you go on another story, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so what curiosities, history, whatever, what, what makes you curious that you find in real or fantasy that really inspire you? Well, right now I'm, Working on a, um, I'm just about 60, 60 odd pages in, a, a, on a historical novel about the expulsion of the Jews from Spain oh, wow. in 1492, and um, which is my father's ancestors. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm amazed and fascinated by, and horrified by many of the things that I'm discovering there. And uh, this will be a middle grade book. So I'm comforting myself that there are many middle grade books about the Holocaust mm -hmm. because some the things that happened were uh, just awful. But I'm interested. I've read a biography of Queen Isabella and Ferdinand and... Now I'm reading A Daily Life of Jews in Spain. And like an example that I've learned that I find totally fascinating is that throughout the medieval period, uh, the kings of Spain were, you know, people complain about taxes today. Mm -hmm. But the things that you were taxed on or fined for, I had to pay a penalty for, and um, Kings were always looking for a way to take money out of the pockets of their subjects. And so, for example, they learned Jewish law so that they would get involved if somebody violated a Jewish law. Whoa. The person would have to pay a penalty to the king. <sighs> so I'm, I'm learning and I'm figuring out how to weave this stuff in. And um, it's blowing my mind. And also, it's making me feel exceedingly lucky mm -hmm. that this is what I do, that I can explore something like this and find a way to present it to children. Yeah. And I'm figuring in a time, medieval Spain was a little better than the rest of medieval Europe in this regard, in that women had more education, Jewish women, mm -hmm. had more education and a little bit more agency than they did in other places. But I'm working hard to find a way to give my, my main character agency at a time when women would not have it and girls would not have it. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the challenges that's forming her character is that I've given her this very big, uh, she's kind of a, um, a mathematical savant. 
and her family, that's something that's much needed mm-hmm. and much valued. So that's how I'm creating her character. Um, but that's kind of where I take off from. And that's what I'm thinking about right now. I, I love that. How um, Since you are a pantser for most of your novels, how much research really goes into each of these? Well, this book, the research is daunting. And, okay. And I'm thinking about ways to um, maybe, because I can't, I don't want to get a doctorate in medieval Spain. <laughs> so I'm trying to think of some kind of um, disclaimer that I can put in that will let me um, not have to hew so closely to the facts mm-hmm. that doesn't look lazy. So I don't know. If you have any ideas of how to express that, I'm I interested. Mean, maybe you could find someone with a doctorate, and then when you finish it, send it off, and then he can fix your facts. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Yeah, I do know. I do have have made a contact like that. But nice. anyway, that's. I don't know. <laughs> that is what I'm thinking about. It could be something like, I've researched this to the best of my ability, but if you want to know the truth, you need to go look, or something like that. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe, or um, if you find a resemblance to King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella, well, that was intended. (laughs) (laughs) That works. (laughs) That's funnier. (laughs) I love it. We are so um, glad that we decided to do this interview now because we're, Jeanette and I are actually going to be going into uh, the uh, NaNoWriMo competition. Well, it's like a, (gasps) not competition, but it's like a more of a. uh, I know that. Well, she writes about it. Yeah. To go into NaNoWriMo. And this is Jeanette's second time. This is my first time doing NaNoWriMo. And so since we've discovered your books on writing and they've been extraordinarily helpful. Yes, they have. Um, we're just excited that we happen to do this now, just kind of serendipity, because we're going into this really daunting task, and now we have tools to help us along the the mm-hmm. ride. Oh, well, my head is off to you for doing it. <laughs> Thanks. I tried it once before. I only got to 6,000 words and then uh, got stuck in the editing loop, so I'm not going to allow myself to edit this time and uh, just yeah. barrel through. Um, but I'm I'm so intimidated slash excited to jump into it and just be like all right let's see how much further i can get this year (laughs) what's the goal how many words Fifty thousand. wow it's a lot yeah i think it's about uh 1800 words if you want to hit the goal and so usually people will give themselves like a 2000 word goal so that that way they can kind of mush it back and forth day to day and and keep around 1800 it's a lot (laughs) it's a lot yeah um, I'm already sort of outlining a story where I'm going to allow myself a little bit of uh, Arabian Nights to, to filter mm-hmm. in where there's a main story, but then there's one character who's a storyteller. So if I ever get stuck, it's just story time and off on a tangent she'll go. <laughs> That's great. That's a great idea. I think it'll help me because I definitely have yeah. a mm-hmm. hard time finishing my project. So this one, I just want to yeah. like get as much meat as I can out of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and for me, it's actually uh, giving a title to each chapter to me helps me think about what's going to happen in that chapter and kind of envision it for whatever reason. When I when I do short story writing, uh, titles are extraordinarily helpful to me to kind of find that space in my head and then expand out from there. That, you know, everybody works differently. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like a terrific way to keep yourself to keep moving. 
Yeah, it's like, oh, well, I feel that chapter's done, and what's next? It is tea time. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's just the first word that popped into my head. But <laughs> yeah, I just um, wanted to thank you for, I don't know, just the, the things that you write, all of the things that you've written. Your books definitely uh, affected myself and my sister as we were growing up, and the fact that you had these just amazing characters has really motivated us as human beings I think oh thank you so thank you <laughs> um I don't know that's that I just it's really amazing talking to you and to be able to pick your brain for a little bit uh, it's just great to hear a little bit more in depth about your process and it makes it so much more attainable to to feel like it's okay you can jump in you can make mistakes you're gonna throw away things it's fine oh yeah 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 I would revise every book that I've written that's published mm -hmm. if I could. Mm -hmm. But um, but the end point is when it appears in print, then you're done. Yep. <laughs> it's it's kind of like um, I'm also an artist. It's the same thing. It's like as soon as I I put that painting in someone else's hands, it's done. You're you're done. Yeah. You're not going to take it off of someone's wall and keep working on it. It's like no, it's not done. Right. What? I love it. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Jeanette's been doing like Inktober this month and so she's doing an illustration a day and so typically she would probably go back and retouch some of these mm -hmm. and add things and because it's a, an, a, an illustration a day I'm forcing she, myself not she's, to at yeah, the she hasn't touched any <laughs> of it it's just, it's just it's just up there and it's really fantastic because uh, just this exercise alone of doing Inktober has helped her kind of define her own style and stick to a specific style which is why I'm looking forward to NaNoWriMo because if if just Inktober can really help me artistically, I know NaNoWriMo going in with a few more resources this time will help me stay on track and then add to what, what I'd love to get out of it is just getting into that habit of writing every day again. Used to do that. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah, well, that's, that's always good. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's something we're both trying to force ourselves to do. And when I used to do um, blog posts and short stories on the blog uh, that Jeanette does, that was something that helped me get, get that um, that pattern going, that that habit. And now NaNoWriMo, I think, is going to help both of us kind of push through and push ourselves beyond our limits mm -hmm. and create some really great habits. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. Um. So thank you, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing everything that you've learned with us. Where can people find more about you, Gail, if they wanted to learn more about your writing or even read your books? They can go to my website, gailcarsonlevine.com, and there they can click on my books, on my blog, on, you know, if I'm going to appear somewhere, they'll mm -hmm. find it on my website. And they can also follow me on Instagram, which is just Gail Carson Levine, um, Facebook, so everyone listening, I highly recommend reading Gail's books, Writing Magic and Writer to Writer, though I haven't read that one yet. I plan to because it is a lot of what you already have on your blog. So if you want to go read the blog, that's also a great place to get resources and inspiration and a hoorah from a group of other writers. It's a great place to go. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about while you're on with us? Something you want to promote? Well, I'll mention, I don't know how many of your listeners belong to SCBWI, but at the national conference, I will be teaching a two and a half hour workshop in writing 
fantasy. Beautiful. That's February 3rd in New York. But you need to sign up for the conference. Thank you so much for your time, yeah, Gail. Thanks. Seriously, thank great. you. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you so very much, Gail Carson Levine, for taking the time to speak with us about writing. As we mentioned in this episode, Alexander and I are prepping for NaNoWriMo. We'll be going into more detail about our NaNoWriMo preparation on our November 6th episode. So if you are also taking part in NaNoWriMo, that's National Novel Writing Month in November, please let us know on Twitter and or Facebook. For full show notes, please visit podcast.ninthstory.com forward slash S6E07. Make sure to tune in next week as we will have on author Darren Shan, author of the Saga of Darren Shan book series, a.k.a. Cirque de Freak, among many other titles. This has been the Ninth Story Podcast. Keep creative, my friends. Good on us for getting some stuff Hello. done. Welcome to Skype Call Testing Service. <clears throat> After the beep, please record a message. Afterwards, your message will be played back to you. I feel extraordinarily magical today. As do I. Magic rainbow kitten magical levels This of magic. is a spell of purple. It happened. Magic. Explosion. Feel extraordinarily magical today. As do I. Magic rainbow kitten magical levels of this magic. This is a spell of purple. It happened. Magic. If you are able to hear your own voice, then you have configured Skype correctly. If you hear this message, but not your own voice, then something is wrong with your audio recording settings. Or your mind. Please check your microphone and microphone settings Does. or visit Skype. Check the inside of your help. skull for, Thank you for using any Skype damages in the fall Goodbye. when you rolled off the bed this morning. Goodbye. Goodbye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.